It's uh, really good to be with you. My name's Ruth Hassel. I'm um, part of the staff team here. Um, have responsibility for sort of looking after discipleship and life groups and things like that. So it's really good to be able to spend this evening with you. As we continue on this journey that we're going on through um, the letter of 1 John, and depending on when you've joined in with us, if this is your first evening um, as you, you join us, it's sort of quite an abrupt place to, to come in. But if you've been here from the start, you may have noticed that it's a bit of a roller coaster of a letter. That, and John has this way of sort of presenting some things that just feel really stark and they really sort of slap you. And then the next minute he's really affirming and talks a lot about love and, and in the next breath he's speaking of um, sort of comfort and affirmation. And one author said this, he said, his warnings are fiery, but his affirmations are fatherly. And that's kind of the roller coaster that this letter takes us through, that there are some really strong warnings that John puts out. But then actually there's this incredible comfort and affirmation that he brings as well. And that's why I think that when we break books up like we're doing to be able to take them in manageable chunks, it's important to keep reminding ourselves of the context um, in which it is written, of what's gone before and what's going to come afterwards that actually this is written by John. I do apologize. I do have a tendency to keep calling him Paul. So if I say Paul, I mean John. Um, I'll just put that out there now. But John is writing this, and he has a real pastor's heart that he's writing this letter to a church that is going through some difficulties, that there are different things going on. There's much that's encouraging, but there are things that are coming that are quite disturbing to him. And he's writing this from a pastor's heart. That's the place it's coming from. And that's what it's really important that we hear, that that's, um, that's why he's writing it. His words are strong in places, but they always come with the address of, to my dear children. It comes from this place of absolute love for them and wanting the best, that they don't miss out on what God has um, got for them and called them to. And ultimately, the overriding theme of this letter is that of love. This is his constant message that no matter what he's talking about, he then goes on to say, but this is what love is, and points us to Jesus. This is what love looks like, and draws us near to the heart of Jesus. He keeps bringing us back with this overarching theme that it's all held together by love. And if you read through the three letters that John has written, one, two, and three, John conveniently called, um, you'll see that there, there are some really deep theological things, pretty heavy things that he talks about. And sometimes I think we need to just stop and take a moment and explore what, what are some of the words that he uses, what do they mean. Um, last week, Abby shared with us about the warnings that John gave about us being distracted by the things of the world, those things that would draw our attention, that would take us from our first love that would perhaps call us away, that we'd pursue those things rather than God. And in our passage today, John is warning about um, people that would seek to do that, not just the things of the world, but people who would come with a message that would try and draw us away from the true message of the gospel, um, that would have us believing something either extra or other to the gospel that has been presented um, to them. And so in this opening statement of the section that we've had read for us, um, John isn't messing about here, is he? He goes straight in and starts talking about the Antichrist. And um, 
I have to say, when I saw the lovely passages that other people got, and then Matt had put me on the Antichrist, <laughs> my heart sank a little bit. But actually, when we start reading that, it can be quite fearful, can't it? Those are words that we use that, that hold a lot of weight. And in this first section, he talks about the Antichrist and Antichrists. And the first that he's talking about it, and the belief is held that in the last days, in the final days, someone will come who will purport to be Jesus, who will purport to be the Messiah, who will try and take his place and call all people unto themselves. John is the only person who actually names it as this, but Paul, really mean Paul this time, the Apostle Paul does reference it in his letter to the Thessalonians. He talks about one who will come and set himself up as the Christ, but who isn't. But then he also talks in this passage about antichrists, and essentially those are people who are against Christ. That's literally what it means. They are against the teaching of Jesus. They weren't claiming to be Jesus, but they were throwing up some um, questions about the divinity of Jesus, um, about who he was, and they were threatening to deceive some members of the church that John was writing to. The church at that time was facing incredible disturbance that they had, they, they'd been growing and moving along. But some of the members of that church had started presenting different teachings other than the truth of the gospel. They were questioning whether Jesus really was the Messiah. They were putting out there that maybe Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh, that it was just a story that had been told. And they were trying to sort of um, perpetuate this message to the lives of the believers and trying to draw them into a different message. They were telling people that what they had wasn't enough, that the teachings they had received, there was more that they needed to know. They needed to pursue a higher enlightenment to be able to truly know the things of God. And they were seeking to draw people away with this extra message. And throughout the letter, they're called the deceivers, the false prophets, the antichrists. And I think when you hear those kind of words, I don't know about you, but I sort of get sort of a caricature in my mind, you know, somebody in a cape and an evil mask kind of thing that comes and tries to move amongst the people. But the reality is, is it's far more subtle than that, isn't it? And I think that is really what is breaking John's heart in this letter, that this wasn't some caricature that had come in, this evil being to move amongst the people. They were people that had grown up amongst the church themselves. And so you hear the heartbreak of John as he sees that these people putting forward a different message, a gospel that isn't the true gospel, and trying to lead others astray um, with it. They claimed that enlightenment and freedom came through a very special knowledge of God that the current believers didn't have. And it came through that rather than obedience to Jesus. And in many ways, things haven't changed, have they? That I think in every generation, there is something that comes along that says, well, you know, you have the gospel of Jesus, but either it's not enough, or, you know, you don't have to take it that seriously. You can mix it with other things. And over recent years, a lot of work has been done looking at what are those other things, that there is a real sort of belief that you can just pick and mix. You know, look at all the religions of the world or all the philosophies and just take the bits that you like and put them together and make something that suits you. There are different philosophies around um, sort of mantras that we have about, you know, follow your heart, just do what feels right for you. Live by your truth. There's no such thing as the truth. There are all these different messages that come that sort of change with generation after generation. 
but actually they come to alter the true message of the gospel and to draw people away. And this is John's warning. He's like, be careful. Hold true to what you know and from those that you learnt it. Hold on to the true message of the gospel that you don't get um, pulled away. And I remember when I first went to university, and uh, every time I would go home for a holiday for Christmas or the summer, when I went to church, it used to really annoy me because what would happen was people would immediately come up and go, so, hello, how's your term been? You'd be like, oh, fine, great. And then the question would always come, and how's your walk with the Lord? And they did phrase it like that. That was a church I grew up in. It was great. How's your walk with the Lord? And um, I have to confess, in those days, it really kind of got me a little bit knocked because, you know, sometimes it was good and sometimes not so great. Um, but I have to tell you now, many years on, I miss being asked that question. The reality is, as you grow older and as you take a role on the staff team of a church, people don't ask you, how's your walk with the Lord? Is your first love still the one who is capturing your heart? Is your first love the one that you're still pursuing? Are you still fully committed to the gospel of Jesus in its true form? They don't ask you whether cynicism has set in or doubts have come or there are other things that you're wondering are true. And I think for many of us, sometimes it's not the overt things that come, is it? it's the challenges of life that make us question. Sometimes disappointments, sometimes tragedies, just sometimes clever arguments that we hear make us question the things that we feel perhaps we've always known if we've had that privilege of being um, brought up through that. And John is saying to these people here, I'm not saying to this because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. So hold on to it. Listen out and be aware for when those things come that sound like they might be the gospel, but they aren't. Listen out for those things that will tell you you need something extra other than the love of God. Listen out for when they're telling there are things that you can do for yourself to earn your salvation. Keep coming back to the heart of the gospel. Because John knows that in that moment, the, the alternative message can be hugely, hugely attractive. It can give us the illusion that we can do whatever we want, that obedience to Jesus is up for negotiation. But he keeps coming back and saying, you know, fix your heart on Jesus and on the truth of the gospel. And in a, West, in a world where the messages change so quickly, whether that's political messages, like, you know, we have seen so many U-turns in this last few weeks, let alone in recent years, you know, where we hear things about things that are good for us to eat or things that now we once thought were good to, to eat, we now discover aren't good to eat, but probably in a year's time we'll discover are again, so we're constantly yo-yoing between whatever. Actually, the gospel comes as this constant, that it is never changing that it is always faithful, and it is always um, true. And this is John's heart, and I think he longs for us to hear that, to hear his heart about, don't give this up. Hold tight to it. Stay stuck to it. And then once he's given them this warning about being alert for the messages that will come that will seek to distract them and to take them away, he then switches again and gives them real affirmation in verse 20, he says to them, but you, but you. He's painted the picture of the antichrists, those that are against Jesus and the true message of his gospel. And he turns and he says, but you. And these are two things he says. He says, you 
You have the anointing of the Holy One. And secondly, you do know the truth. He affirms them in this, that that's who they are. They are people who have the anointing of God and they know the truth. This anointing, this, this being set apart for sacred use. He says, you know, the deceivers would come and tell you that you need something extra, that you need some special knowledge of God. He's saying you already have it. You have the anointing of God on your life. And that is all that you need. There is fulfillment and absoluteness in that. You have the anointing. When he goes on to say you don't need anyone to teach you, he's not saying you don't need anyone to teach you. Because he's a teacher. He's coming alongside them. What he's saying is you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. He's the one who will teach you. Be open to his leading and his teaching. You already have him. And he wants them just to be absolutely clear that no matter the shame of their past, the questions of their present, or the worries of their future, that if they were in Christ, they were anointed by him, and they had his Holy Spirit. His plea was simple. Will you hear the truth and hold on to the truth and live from that place of truth? And in the remainder part of the passage that we've had read, you may have noticed a reoccurring word which was about remaining, which has echoes of another passage that he wrote in the Gospel of John when he talks about us being vines and branches and this need to remain in the things of God. The word to remain means to dwell, to stay, to be held by, to take root. And he's saying, will you remain in the things that you have known, knowing that fruitful life is only found in obedience to Jesus, in love for him, and following his way. And uh, one author reflecting on this passage wrote this. She said, I would like to relieve you and myself of all tension here, offering you something along the lines of Jesus abides in us, so we don't have to do another thing. It's the end of the story. But both Jesus and John seem to offer something that is more mutual in nature. According to one John, we truly do have a responsibility to abide in Christ and to make sure the purity of Christ's message remains in us. I don't believe that John is saying that salvation comes by how hard we cling to this message. Remember that the message they've heard from the beginning is the good news that God clings to us by sending Jesus in the flesh to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. When this message dwells in you, you also dwell in the Son and the Father, and you have the promise of eternal life. At the same time, we must allow the tension to pull at us wherever it's pulling. We have a responsibility to allow the good news of Jesus rooted in Scripture to abide in us richly and in a way that will literally affect the way that we live our lives. We need to actively foster this message of hope and truth in our hearts. That there's a mutuality to it. That Jesus has done for us everything that we couldn't do for ourselves and made us right with God. But then there is a responsibility that we do what we can to abide in him, to remain in him, to dwell in him, and to know him and to love him. And I don't know where, where you, you stand tonight. I don't know whether maybe you're currently wondering if all that you've heard of the gospel really is all that it promises to be. Or maybe this is the first time that you've heard of these things and they're coming to you as new. 
But for each one of us, the challenge is that other things will seek to look attractive and to draw us away. But as Abby reminded us so beautifully last week, those things are fleeting and ultimately fake and don't lead to the fulfillment that that we long for. And that's why John is so passionate about this message, is that he knows that that can only come from a life lived with Christ. And he longs for people to stay connected to that, to know God's love in all its fullness, and to have hearts that respond in an overflow to him. And so I think the question that that sort of raises itself for me is, well, what would choosing to remain in Christ, to abide in him, what would that mean or require of us? And actually, this is something that we're continuing to explore together as God's people here um, at St. T's. Um, Over the last year or so, we've put together something that we've called our Vision 2025 that sets out our heart for what we think God is calling us to do in these days and months and, and years ahead. And one of the things that kept coming to the surface was that actually as a people of God, we want to be deeply rooted in Christ, in the church, and in the city of Lancaster that that's what we believe God is calling us to, that we would be deeply rooted, that we would abide in him, both individually and collectively, that we know that all that we receive from God actually requires an overflow and actually flows out um, into our city and to those around us. There's that mutuality about it. So what does it require of us? There are many things, I'm sure you have come across many, many different lists, and what I'm going to say is not rocket science. But just some things to flag up again that primarily it's about establishing our own pattern of being with Jesus, of taking that time just to dwell with him, to spend time with him, to hear his heart, to tell him that we love him, and to to long to hear his word, allowing that silence for God to be able to speak his heart and to quieten all the other voices that would seek to distract us that come so loudly in our minds that would try and declare what they think of us over us rather than listening to what God has said. So firstly, establishing our own pattern of being with Jesus, dwelling with him, hearing his heart, and sharing yours. Secondly, what we really love to encourage people is to um, join a life group. There are home groups, um, or as we've had spoken about the student group, Deeper, Um, is a great place to come where we can encourage each other, where we can look at the word together, where we can share life and um, encourage each other for where God is at work and where we're pursuing him. So there's a real encouragement to you to get involved in a smaller group where we can talk together of the things of God. You might like to seek out a mentor, somebody who can walk alongside you where you can talk life and faith in a one-to-one context. And look out for those, those ways in which God is at work and what he's calling you to. You might want to form a prayer triplet with some friends and commit to meeting on a regular basis to pray together, to really seek um, the things of God. Or you might want to look for an opportunity to serve. Because we say this all requires an overflow. That actually as we receive, we give. And that one of the ways in which we grow in our faith is by serving others, whether that's here within the church or in the life of the city, and that we're not disconnected from that. But actually, it's got to be good news for Lancaster that we've met here tonight. Well, what are we doing? (laughs) There is something about encouraging our own hearts, but there has got to be that overflow that means there is good news for Lancaster, that the people of God have met, 
and have gathered around his word and have um, listened to his heart. And if you want to talk further about any different way in which you might um, abide more, you might um, sort of get more deeply rooted, please do and come talk to anybody who's got one of these lanyards and they'll gladly um, point you in that direction. But as I close, I just want to come back to this whole thing of um, John's encouragement of, but you, but you, you have the anointing of the Holy One. You know the truth. And when Jesus came and began his public ministry, he shared the anointing that was on him that then through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And actually he used the words recorded for us in Isaiah to declare what the anointing meant for him, what his mandate was, that then he has passed on to us. And in the words of Isaiah 61, it tells us what this anointing is for. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated, and they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. But you, you have received the anointing of the Holy One, and you have his truth. And so my prayer as we bring this part of the evening to a close and we move into um, sort of a response and worship, is that my prayer is that we would truly know that anointing in our workplaces, in our colleges, in our universities, in our homes, around our dinner tables, that we would know that Jesus has set us apart for his kingdom purposes and has anointed us with his spirit to be able to be those who proclaim his goodness and his life for all that would hear. This is so important for us to be able to grasp for our own lives that we become deeply rooted, that we abide and dwell in him. But it's so important for the communities around us as well, as that life of Jesus is lived out from the overflow of our hearts and that good news is is taken further. So shall we pray together as, um, yeah, we, we then move on to Um, a time of response through sang worship. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much that you you don't leave us alone. You don't set out um, things ahead of us that you call us to do without giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, I'd pray again for that fresh anointing on each heart here who loves you and knows you and owns you as their Lord. Jesus, I pray that you would come and do what only you can do, that you would renew and restore, that you would give vision and imagination. So Lord, I pray, open our hearts to you, Lord. Give us eyes to see what you're calling us into in the places around us. Keep our eyes fixed on you. 
and our lives dwelling in you and your truth. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.